Lord, would you give us your favor as we open up your word today? We ask for your favor, Lord. We ask for the ministry of your spirit through the word of God. Touch hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be reading Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. And I've entitled this message, Men That Turned the World Right Side Up. That's the name. Acts 17, 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. <clears throat> Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds, then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. <clears throat> and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now verse 6 in the ESV says, The enemies of the gospel have turned the world I'm sorry, not the enemies of the gospel. Paul and Silas have turned the world upside down. That's how the King James Version renders this verse. That's how the New King James renders it. That's how the ESV renders it. Our Bible says they have set the world. But I like that phrase. These men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here also. <clears throat> now they meant it as an accusation and a slur, but we can take it as a compliment. Yeah, they are turning the world upside down. They were having a dramatic impact and effect on the places where they were ministering. Ever since the fall, this world has been turned on its head. Originally, it was right side up because you had peace and harmony in the world. There was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no death. Creation and man and animals all lived in perfect harmony in this beautiful paradise that God had made. But then sin entered and everything changed. 
And now you have chaos and disruption and disorder. God brings a curse upon the world. Uh, there's rebellion that's going on in the world. God originally created the world very good, but soon afterwards it became very bad because of the introduction of sin. So God created the world right side up, but through the fall, it was turned upside down, and now God is in the business of turning an upside down world right side up again. And that's what the missionaries here are doing as they travel from place to place. They're not turning it upside down, they're turning it, it's already upside down, they're turning it back to the way God wanted it to be originally. Originally, man lived in harmony with God and in communion with God, but after the fall, his mind, his emotions, and his will were all distorted and perverted through sin. He no longer thinks rightly about God. He no longer feels rightly about God. He no longer chooses rightly about God. So the world, through sin, was plunged into this upside-down disorder and chaos. And God is calling people now to go into this perverted and distorted and corrupt world and try to bring God's order to it, to bring the kingdom of God to this world. And that's what we have taking place here in Acts 17. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, three members of this missionary team, arrive first in Thessalonica, and then we read about their exploits in Berea. And in both places, they're turning their worlds right side up. They've already been made new creations in Christ. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were born again. So their personal life has been turned right side up. And now they're just projecting that to the people that they ministered to. And many of them now, their lives are being turned right side up again. And whenever you have a sin-cursed world and sinners in that sin-cursed world, uh, sinners get along fairly well within that sinful system. But you bring righteousness to bear upon a sinful world and a collision course is at hand. A train wreck is waiting to happen. And that's what we find. Whenever righteousness pervades a wicked world, you find a collision. You find conflict. You find persecution taking place. So I want to talk to you this morning about the kind of people that turn a world right side up. And I hope we will be those kind of people. I hope we'll follow the example of Paul, Timothy, and Silas. There are certain Christians who will live and die and virtually have no effect on the world that they live in. They don't even cause a ripple. They just meld in. They just go with the flow. Uh, I don't want to be that kind of a Christian. I want to have an effect on the world I live in. I want to make a difference in somebody's life here in this world. I want to be a change agent for Christ. Paul and Silas and Timothy were change agents. They were having an effect. They were producing eternal changes in people's lives. So, do you want to be an instrument of God that actually produces righteous changes in other people's lives? I know you do. Someone once said there's three kinds of people in the world. Those that watch things happen, those that make things happen, and those who don't know what's happening. So which kind of a person are you? Are you making things happen? Are you watching things happen or you don't know what's happening? <laughs> Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist 
was a man who turned his world right side up. Righteousness pervaded a sinful world and through his preaching. He would say to the religious leaders that came to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now there's a man who's turning a wicked world right side up through his preaching. He even told King Herod, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Righteousness colliding with wickedness. And he paid for it, didn't he? He had his head chopped off for that statement. But he was bold as a lion. You, you could never accuse John the Baptist of being a coward or being fearful of man. He feared no man. Jesus Christ was the ultimate man who turned the world right side up. In Jesus' preaching, he also collides with wickedness. In Matthew 23, you get a really good example of Jesus in this respect. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees serpents, a brood of vipers, children of hell. And you better believe when he confronts them about, about their wickedness and their hypocrisy that he's upsetting Satan's apple cart and they're going to come after him, which is exactly what happened. Because of his bold preaching and confrontation of the religious leaders of his day, they turned his back into hamburger meat, and they nailed his body to a cross to die. He paid for it too. But he was turning his world right side up. The Apostle Paul is another man who's doing the exact same thing. Everywhere he went, he rattles his world. When he enters a town, he's either driven out by a riot, or a revival takes place in that place. Either a riot or a revival. But he's definitely a change agent in the places where he goes. And we need to... Look at these men of God and ask ourselves, okay, is the Lord using me? Or am I just trying to meld in with everybody else and just go float downstream? What, what kind of fish float downstream? Dead fish. It takes a live fish to go upstream, to go against the current of popular culture, which is unrighteous. So I want to show you four aspects to Paul's ministry and these aspects of his ministry are what enabled him to turn his world right side up. And the first one's courage. So let's take a look first of all at his ministry in the synagogue in Thessalonica. There in 17.1, it says, When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now Amphipolis was 33 miles from Philippi. Remember in chapter 16, they're in Philippi. So they, tra they travel 33 miles to Amphipolis, and then another 30 miles to uh, Apollonia, excuse me. And then after that, there's another 37 miles to get to, Th to Thessalonica. They're not stopping in Amphipolis or Apollonia because these are small little towns. And Paul's basic strategy was to uh, plant a church in the major urban centers of the world. And from there he knew that the, the believers in those major cities would then venture out to the surrounding villages and towns and evangelize those areas on their own. But he was trying to start a beachhead for the gospel in the major cities of the ancient world. 
He's already done that in Pisidian Antioch. He's done that in Philippi. And now he's going to seek to do that in Thessalonica. Because Thessalonica, being 100 miles away from Philippi, was a major commercial center in the ancient world of that time. It was a thriving commercial city. It had at least 200,000 people, which in those days was a very large city. By today's standards, that's not very big. Sacramento's probably got half a million. So, but in those days, Thessalonica was one of the big cities of the world. It was situated by the Aegean Sea, and it was along major trade routes, and so that's what made it a, a great place to grow as a strong commercial center. Now notice verse 2. It says, the end of verse 1 says, There was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What happens every single time Paul goes to a synagogue in a new city? I mean, think back with me about <laughs> on his first missionary journey. He goes to Pisidian Antioch, and the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and drove them out of town. Acts 13.50. So they come to Iconium. They go to the synagogue there. What happens? The Jews and the Gentiles conspired together to stone the apostles. They catch wind of it. They hightail out of there before they're actually killed. They come to Lystra. And in that city, Paul is actually stoned. They think he's dead. They leave him for dead. But God raises him up and he goes back into the city and continues to minister. Whenever they go to the synagogue, persecution is the inevitable result. And it doesn't look too promising for Paul to keep going to these synagogues. He keeps getting into trouble every time he goes there. So you would think he would just try to avoid the synagogues, right? Let's, let's try something else that I'm not going to get stoned for. <laughs> Let, let's try an easier route. But Paul doesn't do that. Why does he keep going back again and again to the synagogues, wherever he goes? Well, I think he tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, that he was sent to the Jews first, also to the Greeks. Paul believed that the Lord was calling him to go to both Jews and Greeks, but to the Jew first. So wherever he went, to whatever city, he'd go to the synagogue, preach to the Jews. When they rejected it, he'd go to the Gentiles. He'd go to the Greeks. So he believed that was the will of God for his life. And in order to be obedient to the will of God, he just kept going to the synagogues, no matter what the personal cost to him was. And it was a great cost. So every time he approaches a synagogue, it results in pain and affliction and threats, mob riots. In this particular case in Thessalonica, his disciples sneak him out of town at night because there's another threat on his life. So when they sneak him out of town, what does he do? Does he say, oh, this is a good time for vacation, little R&R. I'm just going to go away someplace where nobody knows where I am and just... Just uh, chill out for a while, right? He doesn't do that. He goes to Berea. Now, Berea was 50 miles away, but Berea was kind of like a hick town compared to Thessalonica. It was a little village. It was small. It was out of the way. It wasn't a major trade route there. But Paul finds himself there. The disciples must have thought, well, he'll be safe in Berea. Nothing goes on in Berea. 
It's just a little village where nothing's happening. So we'll just send him over there for a while until things calm down. So what does Paul do? He starts preaching in Berea. He goes to the synagogue in Berea. It's like, you can't stop this guy. <laughs> Persecution doesn't stop him. Pain, stoning, nothing stops him. If he's still got life in his breath, he's going to do the will of God. And I, I really admire Paul for that. He's like an unstoppable machine. So, he goes to Berea. In chapter 17, verse 10, the brethren, brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And it tells us here in verse 11, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. You know, it says, it was said of David Livingston, he was once asked, David, he was a great missionary, he was once asked where he was prepared to go, and David Livingston replied, I'm, I'm prepared to go anywhere so long as it is forward. He refused to go backwards, and he refused to quit, and Paul was just like that. He refused to quit, and he refused to go backward. He was going to advance no matter what the cost was. I, he reminds me of what, like a, a Marine who, I mean, they've already decided that their life is probably on the line. That's a given. We're just going to accomplish the mission. That's what Paul was like. And you know, we need courage, the same kind of courage that you see Paul displaying here. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I don't consider my life as dear to myself. It's not precious to me. What's precious is accomplishing the will of God, the course that he's called me to. So one thing mattered obeying Jesus and fulfilling Jesus' will for his life. That was the one thing that drove Paul. So what about you? What matters the most to you in life? And be honest with yourself. What is the, th the thing, if I had to nail down one thing that is the most important thing to me, I hope you can say the one thing that's most important is that I accomplish the will of God for my life. And the will of God for your life is going to be a little different than it might be for your neighbor, your friend, your relative, and somebody else in the church. But God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and he wants us to finish that and accomplish that will. But in order to do that, you're going to need courage. I remember when we first started the bridge, there was a pastor friend of mine that challenged me to take the gospel door to door. And I didn't want to do it. Because I thought, boy, if, if I start knocking on people's doors, that's just going to be so intrusive, and they're, they're going to hate me. <laughs> and I didn't want to do it, but finally, I took him up on his challenge, and we started going door to door, and handing out tracts, giving gospel um, literature, and some people came to Christ, interestingly. I can think of three, right off the top of my head, that came to Christ. So that was wonderful. But initially, I was afraid. I didn't have the courage I needed to do that. Where does courage come from, folks? Yeah, it comes from God for sure. I would also say it comes from confidence. The more confidence you have, the more courage you're going to have. 
I don't know how many years ago it was now, at least 15 years ago, Debbie decided to give me and my son Jonathan a Christmas present. And it was two tickets. We opened them up and there's two tickets. And they're skydiving tickets. And she took me seriously. I was telling her one, one day, I thought, I thought, that'd be cool to skydive. Wouldn't that be cool? And then I got these tickets and I go, oh no. <laughs> no, I have to do it. <laughs> I have to do it. So it was sort of a bittersweet gift. It was bitter and sweet at the same time. Because I was, to be frankly honest with you, I was scared silly to jump out of that plane. And I asked Oleg if he'd put a photo up here. This is the expression on my face going out of that airplane. I don't think I've ever been more terrified than I was at that moment. You're looking down 10,000 feet at the ground. <laughs> and and I, somebody pushed me from behind. I didn't even jump. I'm in the air before I know it. And that, that's the expression on my face. Uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have life insurance either. <laughs> um, so I had to go through all the mental exercises of reminding myself, number one, okay, people have been safely jumping out of parachutes for a lot of years now, and not very many people have died. Most people actually make it safely on the ground. Number two, the possibility of something going wrong is pretty rare, pretty small, um, and number three, even if it does go wrong, they have a backup parachute. Okay, now I'm feeling a little bit better. And then I'm not going by myself. I get to go with this other guy, and he's done it 5,000 times before, and he knows what he's doing. <laughs> so I had to go through all of these mental exercises. What am I doing? I'm trying to boost my confidence in the integrity of the parachute, in the integrity of the guy I'm going with, so my confidence is being built by reminding myself of these truths and my courage is building, at least building enough so that I'm able to get in the plane and go. This was 10,000 feet up. They say it takes about two minutes. You're free falling for one minute and after one minute you open your chute and you fall for another three or four or five minutes. That's the fun part is when the parachute opens up and you're going back and forth like this. That's really fun. Falling is terrifying. <laughs> He has confidence in his God. He has confidence in the scriptures. So he's bold as a lion. I think the more confidence in God we have, the more courage we're going to have as well. Psalm 27.1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So if you are finding fear taking root in your heart, Look to the Lord. Increase your confidence in the Lord, your trust in the Lord. He is your light. He is your salvation. He can drive out fear. So confidence in God doesn't mean that you're confident that everything's going to turn out just the way you want it to. That's not what we're talking about. It didn't turn out just the way Paul wanted it to. He didn't want to get stoned or driven out of city after city. But he had confidence that God was going to work all things together for good. He had confidence that God was going to be with him and he'd never leave him or forsake him. He had confidence that God's promises were true in his life and we can have the same confidence ourselves. So that's the first thing. If you want to be a person that turns the world right side up, you need to have courage and that courage comes through God and having confidence in him. Secondly, you need to have, have content 
Not just courage, but also content. And this goes back to what uh, Anthony was just talking about in verse 2. Paul's reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he was saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So, who is the, fo- excuse me, who is the focus of all of Paul's preaching? Christ is. He's the focus. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And where did Paul go in order to preach Christ? Where does he go? Well, he's in the synagogue, but where in the synagogue does he go? What source is he looking at? The scriptures. Verse 2. Oh, where does he go? Like, okay. Sorry, that's kind of an ambiguous question. But he is reasoning with them from the scriptures. He doesn't just pull it out of his head or go to Socrates or Aristotle to try to prove his points. He goes to the word of God to show to them that Jesus had to be the Christ. So Paul, well, let me back up a little bit. So he goes to the scriptures to preach Christ. And Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. So they were making an idol of the scriptures in and of themselves. And Jesus said, wait a minute, the scriptures, all they're doing is they're constantly pointing to me. You've made an idol out of the Bible. I am the one that you should be worshiping and looking to. The scriptures are pointing to me from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is the focal point of all the word of God. So Paul here is an expository preacher. Have you ever heard that phrase, expository preacher? The word expository simply means someone who exposes, expository, exposes the true meaning of the text. So an expository preacher is someone who goes to the Bible for his source and seeks to expose and uncover and make clear and known to God's people the meaning of that word. I seek to be an expository teacher every time I come before you. I don't want to speak my own thoughts. I want to try to expose to you the meaning of God's word. Paul was doing that in Thessalonica. And it says that he reasoned with them. The Greek word is dialegami. Does that sound like any English word you know of? Dialegami? Dialogue. We get our English word dialogue from that Greek word dialegami. So when it says Paul reasoned with them, don't think of Paul standing up and for an hour giving a monologue lecture. Because that's not a dialogue. A dialogue is two-way communication isn't it? I think what Paul is doing is, yeah, he is preaching. He's taking the the, uh, Old Testament scriptures and reading them and expounding them in the synagogue, but I'm sure there was feedback and there was questions. Maybe a little bit like what we do here when we have a a message and then we have Q&A. There was was a two-way thing going back and forth within the synagogue. People were saying, well, what, what do you mean, Paul? Who is this Jesus? What are you talking about? The Messiah has come. And you know, they'd have this dialogue. And Paul's reasoning and giving evidence from the scriptures that Jesus was the one. So here's Paul's logical argument. He's got a major premise. The Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
That's verse 3. He gets that from the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures talk about Jesus suffering. They talk about him rising from the dead, Isaiah 53. He's got a minor premise. Okay, here's the major one. The Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The minor premise, Jesus suffered and rose from the dead. So the logical deduction, Jesus is the Messiah. So he's an apologist. He's giving evidence. That's what an apologist does. He gives evidence for what he believes from the word of God. Now the Jews had a problem with all of this because they had this preconceived idea that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a conquering king, like a political hero. And he was going to overthrow the Romans, and the Jews then would be their own people, they'd stand on their own feet, they'd be their own nation, they'd be a powerful force on the earth. But uh, that was their preconceived idea, and Paul comes in, he starts telling them, no, the Messiah had to suffer. He's not just a conquering king, he is that, but he's also a suffering servant. And when the, when the rabbis looked at all of the scriptures about their Messiah in the Old Testament, they came up with this, this idea that, oh, there's got to be two Messiahs. There's got to be one Messiah that will come to suffer. They called him Messiah ben Joseph. And they said, there's got to be another one that comes to rule and reign as a conqueror. And they called him Messiah ben David. Because they couldn't fathom that the one Messiah could be both the sufferer and the king. But that's exactly what we have in the person of Jesus. He was the sufferer, and he is forever the ruling king of kings and lord of lords. So, think about the content of Paul's preaching in Berea. Look at verse 11. These men were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, in verse 11, he speaks about the word. They received the word with great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures daily. Same thing. The word equals the scriptures. But that was the focus of the Berean. Now, these are unconverted Jews in Berea. But they're examining the word and the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. I love the attitude of these Berean non-believers. They're not believers yet. But I love their attitude. It says they were more noble than the Jews over in Thessalonica. They were more noble because they willingly met Paul for a daily discussion of the scriptures. In Thessalonica, they just met on the Sabbath once a week. In Berea, they're meeting every day. So there's this great eagerness to learn, to see, could it be that these guys are on the right track? Let's check it out. Let's meet every day and figure this thing out. And secondly... The ones in Berea received the word with all eagerness. The Thessalonian Jews were much more resistant to Paul's message. They weren't receiving the word with all great eagerness at all. So they were more noble-minded. They're meeting daily, and they're meeting eagerly. So I think the Bereans give us a really great example of how we should approach the word of God, even though they weren't even Christians yet. I love the way they looked at the word of God. They looked at it eagerly, yet cautiously. They were not overly skeptical because they received it with great eagerness, but they were not overly gullible because they examined it day after day to see whether these things were so. 
And the problem we have as Christians is we can be either too skeptical or too gullible. I remember as a young Christian, I was too gullible. I was just very eager, <laughs> loved the Lord. I was just born again. I remember carrying my banjo into the, uh, the bus station, had a big Jesus sticker on it. I'd just been saved like within six months. You know, I'm walking in there and this guy came up to me and he says, hey, are you a Christian? I saw your sticker on your banjo case. I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Real happy to talk about the Lord there in the bus station. And he says, so am I. In fact, we're having a Christian conference over at this location. Why don't you come and join us tonight? Great. I'd love to do that. I'd love to meet some other Christians. <laughs> so I ended up going, and guess what it was? It's a bunch of moonies. So over the years, I learned I have to balance this eagerness for the word, which is a bit gullible, with also some discernment. And I need to learn how to personally examine these things according to the scriptures to see whether they're so or not. So you need to balance discernment and gullibility. Eagerness with gullibility. Um, I'll tell on Debbie if she's not listening. <laughs> when, so when we were first married, Debbie would come home and she'd be really excited about something that she heard on the radio. And she said, yeah, he was saying this on the radio, and I just thought it was so great and so neat. And by this time, I wasn't so gullible anymore. I was kind of skeptical. And so I would say, well, who is talking on the radio, honey? What church is he a pastor of? Where was he getting that from the Bible? And pretty soon, she would just throw up her hands and get so frustrated with me. <laughs> and she would say, why do I even try to bring these things up with you? <laughs> I'm sorry I even brought it up, you know. But over the years, over the years, Debbie has become a lot better at discerning truth from Scripture. I, I do have to say that. She's gotten much, much better. She's, she's actually very good at discerning truth from, from just kind of how does this make me feel to, okay, where in the Word does it say that, and is this in context, and all of those things. So praise the Lord for that. But we do need to be eager for the Word, but we need to balance that with being discerning and examining Let's not just accept everything that somebody says. If you turn on Christian radio or Christian TV, don't just believe everything that somebody says just because they're a preacher. <laughs> you need to grow in maturity. Grow in your understanding of the word. Grow in your discernment. We have great need not only for courage, but also for content, for truth. The cults show a lot of courage. They go day after day after day knocking on people's doors. It takes a lot of courage to do that. But they don't have the content. They don't have the truth to match their courage. As Christians, we need courage and we need content. We need biblical truth that we are sharing with our courage. So if you're going to be someone God's going to use, you have to become a person of the word. There are no shortcuts for this. There's no way around it. Every, think about the people in your life that have been close to the Lord, who have walked with the Lord, who've had, had a real impact for Christ in your life. And I, I can bet you, every single one of them are people of the word. When I look back at my life and the people that have influenced me for Christ, they've always been people that knew the word, that walked in the word of God. And if you don't have a strong commitment and priority to the word of God, you're not going to be someone that God can really use. 
The word of God is what builds us up and makes us able to be useful to him. And so, I'm just going to challenge you to consistently and painstakingly put your nose in the book day after day after day and don't take it out. Make it the first thing you do in the day. If you don't, you're going to get caught up with everything else that has to get done and it won't happen. Find Christ in his word and, and make it a priority of every day that you're going to fellowship with Christ through his word. And if we just are lackadaisical about this, we're going to find ourselves becoming a little less and a little less close to the Lord. So I just want to challenge you. If, if that's not your practice now, make it your practice. In fact, make a decision right now. Here in church, this very moment, make a commitment. From now on, I'm going to spend time with the Lord in His Word on a daily basis. We often think that the Word of, the word of God is what brings new life to a sinner. It does that, but it also maintains that new life in a Christian. Maintains it. Like in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. So spiritual growth as Christians happens through the word, just like spiritual life for sinners happens from the word. Make it the goal of your life to really know the Bible. To really know it. For example, if I said to you, what's John chapter 13 about? Could you say, yeah, I know what that's about. It's about Jesus washing his disciples' feet and later talking about that they are to love one another as he has loved them. What if I said, what's John chapter 4 about? Could you tell me? It's about the woman at the well and that whole discussion after that. I'm, I would encourage if you don't know the Bible well, take one book that you want to learn and read it and then go back and read it again. And then go back and read it again. And read it until you feel like you really are starting to understand that book. You know what each chapter is about. You can identify. In fact, what was that book, that Bible that Kay Arthur was behind? The Inductive Study Bible. It's a great Bible because then you, you give a heading to every chapter. She teaches you how to underline and look for things. In the, anyway, that's, that's an aside. That's a great study Bible if you've never tried doing this. Um, I think it's called the, in, the inductive, inductive Study Bible. And then after you have read the Bible several times or read a particular book or chapter several times, pray about the things you're reading in it. So it's not just an intellectual exercise. You're communing with God through the word, through prayer. So take what you're learning and what God is showing you and talk to him about it. And then third step, start to share what you're learning with somebody else. So maybe it's your family members. You share with them the things that you saw from the word that day. Maybe it's a, a friend that you hang out with. But share it. Don't just keep it inside. Or another way you can do it is share it through our texting group. I wish that all of you were doing that every day, honestly. I'd love it. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on the word of God. So anyway, I'm, I'm throwing this out because I'd like you to consider, prayerfully consider these things as practical application. 
Okay, third aspect of a person that turns the world right side up is converts. Look at 17.4. It says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So in Thessalonica, there was many converts. Paul was there for three Sabbaths. That's only three weeks. And many people were coming to Christ. And then look at 17.12. In Berea, therefore many of them in Berea believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. If you're going to be a person that turns the world right side up, you need people to do it with you. You can't do it by yourself. You need converts. You need people who have come to faith. What I'm trying to express here is that you need to make disciples who will make other disciples. In order to turn the world right side up, you need a movement. You need people reproducing their spiritual life into somebody else through a disciple and teaching that disciple to make another disciple and that disciple to make another disciple so that the whole church knows it's their job to make disciples that make disciples. When we first started the bridge, that was our byline, the bridge. Disciples making disciples. We haven't talked about that in a while. But that is so important. If we don't do that, what, what do we have? In 20, 30, 40 years, the church dies and there's nobody left. There's no new generation of people coming up that are being saved through the gospel. There's no movement taking place. So, if you've been saved more than two or three years, you ought to be invested in somebody trying to help disciple them. The, the problem that we have is that we, we think that we need to be discipled and it can go on for 20 or 30 years. And we think, well, I'm just being discipled. When are you going to start discipling? Jesus told his whole church to make disciples. Are you doing anything to make a disciple? Are, is there anything in your, day, in, in your week, on a weekly basis, where, yeah, I, I'm intentionally putting forth effort to try to make disciples. Now that includes not just winning people to Christ, sharing the gospel, that's part of it, but it also includes teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded. So you might have a, a lost friend that you're speaking to and encouraging, praying for, or it might be a young, younger believer than you that you're trying to help grow in their faith. But all of us have a responsibility in this area. So think about people in your life. Who is there that you're pouring yourself into? And we ought to be able to think of some people. And for some of you, it might be your kids. I mean, that's your primary responsibility. It might be discipling those kids, which means that you're going to be teaching them at home. You'll be praying for them. Uh, you'll be helping them to learn how to read the Bible and understand it for themselves. Um, but there should be somebody that we're pouring our life into. Okay, let's move on to the fourth characteristic of people that turn the world right side up. It's conflict. When you courageously preach the truth and you make converts, what's going to happen? Conflict. Satan is not going to like what's taking place because you're invading his kingdom and you're bringing his slaves out of his kingdom and he's going to fight back with everything he's got. This happened in Thessalonica. 
In 17.5 it says, But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. So all of this is going on in Thessalonica. It happened also in Berea. In verse 13, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. So, wherever the word of God goes, the Jews that don't like it, stir up the crowd to oppose Paul. They don't get their hands dirty themselves. Have you noticed that? They know how to find willing dupes, like hoodlums, <laughs> that'll do their dirty work for them. And so they're stirring them up to, to start these riots. But there's always conflict. And there's going to be conflict in our lives if you want to be a change agent. If you want God to use you to turn the world right side up. If you settle for the status quo of what's going on in our culture today and make no ripples and make no waves, there'll be no conflict. You just fit right in like a dead fish going downstream. But if you speak truth into a godless culture, there's going to be some conflict. And we don't like conflict. We don't like to make waves. And so we try to avoid it. But I want to encourage you, sometimes it's not the righteous thing to do to avoid conflict. Sometimes you need to be involved in conflict. Now you can do that graciously and kindly and respectfully, but sometimes you need to speak truth. Sometimes you just need to. So let me just conclude our time together by asking some questions. Are you a man or a woman of courage? Do you find your courage through confidence in God and God's character? Are you a person of content, biblical truth? Are you painstakingly searching the scriptures every day like the Bereans, that you would be equipped, that God could use you? Are you laboring to see converts? Are, are you doing anything in your life intentionally to bring people to Christ? And if the three things above that I just mentioned are true about you, you're going to be facing conflict. Are, is there any conflict in your life because of the truth that you speak? May God help us to follow in the wake, in the train of the Apostle Paul. He's a good example for us. He went about turning the world right side up. I hope that he'll help us in whatever sphere of influence we have in our lives to turn our worlds right side up by being men of character, men that are different from the culture around us, men and women of God. May God help us. And Lord, we just call on you. We ask you to make these things true. Lord, none of us likes pain, suffering, conflict. We don't want to offend others, but yet, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. And Lord, if that means speaking something that is not going to be welcome, then so be it. I pray that we would have the heart of Paul, that the, the, th the thing that matters most in life is doing your will. So form that in us, Lord. 
Make it to be true of us. Give us the courage we need in each situation. In Jesus' name, amen.